1: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about a history of prejudice, race, caste and difference in India and the United States. And this is the latest book by Gyanendra Pandey. Gyanendra is a professor at the Department of History in Emory College and the book is really a a wonderful analysis of prejudice and democracy through a comparison of African Americans on the one side and Indian Dalits on another. Now, these large themes and these disparate populations are explored by focusing on particular case studies and these case studies are at once both very private and public and I think they really now allow for a unique subtle and delicate analysis of what maybe in other people's hands might be quite unwieldy topics. I really enjoyed this book and I had the pleasure of speaking with Ganendra just a few moments before. Okay so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Guyon onto the podcast thanks so much for your fascinating book and uh, thanks again for coming on. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm sure many of our listeners will know you primarily as a scholar of South Asia, but I think a good way of of getting to the heart of your new book is to ask you, what was it that motivated you to start working on racial prejudice in the U.S.? And what did you hope to learn by placing the history of prejudice of Dalits and African-Americans side by side?
0: And that's um, a large question which could have many uh, long-winded answers. Way to respond to that is to say there two things and two different ways I might um, think about this. Uh, one is that we grew up uh, from the middle of the 20th century. I think people who, who grew up in the post-First World War, post-Indian uh, independence sort of period, um, grew up in a world that was very concerned with change all over the world, with transforming the world. Uh, So we grew up with very great interest in and awareness of struggles in the United States, in Vietnam, in China, you you name it, Uh, all over Africa, of course. These were very important parts of our own uh, upbringing and our education. Um, so I had an interest in the black struggle, in the women's struggle, in the anti-Vietnam War struggle, the, as, as far as the United States was concerned, uh, from quite early on, from my days as an undergraduate and graduate student, uh, late 60s and 70s, and uh, on from there. Um, so that's one reason why um, the history of South Asia, and the history of the struggle to transform South Asia. Was always going to be seen uh, alongside other struggles. Why, in my case, uh, this came to be um, a juxtaposition of uh, an American struggle with an Indian struggle was that I moved to the United States in uh, at the end of the 20th century, in 1998. Uh, and when I did that, and when I realized after a few years that I actually lived in this country and. Wasn't just commuting, wasn't just traveling, visiting occasionally from India. Um, I felt it was very important for me to engage with the politics and history of the people around me, uh, not to be making a revolution, you know, six thousand miles or nine thousand miles away, um, but uh, to be engaged with the politics and struggles of people right around me. Um, and so I turned back to stuff that I had been reading. I got far more involved with reading uh, about the African American struggle and writings. Uh, and uh, history. Um, so that's the more immediate reason for that. Why the juxtaposition of those two happened was that I had been working on the Dalit struggle before I left India for some time. And I hadn't written a great deal about it, but I had been working for, on it for several, several years. As part of ongoing work, work we, which we'd been doing for a good 20 years by then, certainly, on... Um, the history of marginalized peoples, subordinated peoples, peoples whose histories weren't written, who didn't have their own archives and who didn't have state power. So the Dalits were part of that investigation for me. When I came to the States and felt I needed to engage with things here, I turned to stuff I already knew, uh, to some extent, or I was already interested in, to a great extent, and um, a struggle that the Dalits had invoked repeatedly. And what's parallel about the African-American Dalit struggle is both our subordinate people's classes, um, castes, um, stigmatized for a very, very long time, given formal citizenship and yet struggling in, in, to, down to our day, to today, uh, to realize the benefits or to be equal, seen as equal, in the social world. Uh, and so the juxtaposition uh, seemed sensible and um, uh, worthwhile. And I certainly learned a lot by putting them together.
1: Wonderful. And we'll explore this uh, more as we go on throughout our discussion. But before we do get into sort of the meat of the book, I want to talk about a distinction you make early on between universal and vernacular prejudice. So could you please talk us through this distinction and how it relates to the modern?
0: Okay, Ian, I can see that you've got a whole set of (laughs) difficult questions. (laughs) They're they're fairly fundamental questions, and as a result, they're actually difficult to answer briefly. But um, let's hope that some of the people listening to this um, conversation uh, will follow them up by reading not only my book, but other books that might relate to these uh, questions. So what I do uh, early in the book, uh, is to say that it would help us. I say, first of all, that, of course, prejudice, the, the mark of prejudice is that it is unacknowledged. Uh, none of us ever um, would say, uh, seem to be willing to acknowledge that we are prejudiced. Uh, it's always other people who are prejudiced. And in in an odd way, because it's not acknowledged, prejudice has no archive. It's not something that's openly discussed and debated. Now, as soon as I say that, you will um, recognize and I recognize that, of course, there are times in history when certain kinds of prejudices are noticed. Uh, And for recent times, we've all talked about racism and casteism and what in India is called communalism, uh, prejudices about other religious communities by members of one religious community uh, and so on. Um, Sexism. And, you know, one could go on. And there are times when those kinds of prejudgments, things that we have grown up with, things that we unthinkingly believe about other kinds, other groups of people, other kinds of people, um, they come to be acknowledged because they become rather extreme. So there are moments of racial conflict or caste conflict or communal conflict or even gender issues that produce polarized positions and produce an acknowledgement of very, very different perspectives. Um, I call this vernacular prejudice. I call these prejudices, which are sometimes recognized, sometimes recognized as things that need to be controlled, um, disciplined, um, if you like, ameliorated, that the state must intervene and do something about these things, or reformers must intervene and do something about these kinds of prejudices. I call them, I, I, I suggest they are what we might think of as sometimes visible prejudice, uh, and I call them vernacular for that reason. They they are thought to be containable, they are thought to be particular to certain groups, certain kinds of people, certain times, Um, even though um, I think most of us, if we thought about it, would acknowledge uh, that is far from being the case, that they are in fact much more widespread than we are willing to acknowledge. Nonetheless, so I marked off as vernacular prejudice those kinds of prejudices that sometimes come to light, come to be focused and come to be addressed as things that need some attention and if possible, containment and change. As against that, I wanted to mark something that is even less acknowledged, if you like, and that was a common sense of any time, the common sense of a community, of a period, of a world, which I call a universal prejudice because it becomes so commonsensical it is taken on board as natural, the truth, um, something that is completely unquestioned. And your um, uh, suggestion or your uh, request that we relate this to the modern uh, helps think about what I call universal prejudice, even less acknowledged, even less visible than the vernacular prejudices, in that we can think about what it is to be modern, what is considered as being modern. And that might give us some clue or an entry into thinking about what I have called universal prejudice. Um, If we think for a moment about what it is to be modern, I think the answers we come up with very quickly uh, have to do with nationhood and citizenship and an unmarked citizenship, which I will try and explain. But um, let's just begin with nationhood each of us for about 100 years or 150 years from somewhere early in the 20th century, um, no, we haven't had 150 years from that time, but in any case, for, for a good century and more, there's been a, um, a sense that um, we all, each of us, belongs to a nation, to one nation, and we all supreme loyalty to that nation. Now, this comes to be accepted as a common sense, truth, There's almost nothing more to be said about it. It just happens to be true. Now, a great deal of this has been eroded in recent times, uh, and yet I believe that common sense prevails. It remains remains in place, that somehow we all belong to individuals, separate nations, and we all owe a primary loyalty, a supreme loyalty, to that nation. Now, uh, if we think about it, this really goes against the grain of most people's existence. Most of us exist in many many spaces. You've just said that you are from northern England and you live in Hungary. Um, And Europe now inhabits, or Europeans in the main inhabit many different nations. Yet we continue with the belief that each nation must have one language, one way of being, one... um, kind of understanding and set of values which mark us as citizens of that nation, as modern citizens of that nation. And let me just illustrate that, and perhaps that will be enough um, uh, on this question and on the notion of the modern. Let me illustrate that with a very trivial example of what it is to be modern and with a a somewhat more abstract, philosophical uh, sort of level of thinking about what it is to be modern. The trivial one which anyone who's been to india but but uh, in most parts of the world uh, we would recognize the trivial one is that to wear western dress especially for men and to speak a european language english or french or german or something like that is to be modern and to speak other languages is somehow to be vernacular, you know, in some other sort of space. Now, one can challenge that. There, there are obviously counterexamples the Japanese have produced and the Chinese continue to use their own languages. But nonetheless, there's a kind of equation in a trivial sort of way between being dressed in a tie and a suit and a coat and speaking English uh, or French or whatever it is and being modern. So that's the trivial example, which is unthinking in the main. And I just, I just want to leave it there. The more difficult, but I think the more powerful uh, illustration of this is that we are all taught to and we are all expected to speak in a language, not just the mundane English, French, um, uh, German, Hindi, Japanese, Chinese, whatever it might be, um, but philosophically in a language that is modern, And by that, what we are being told is that, for example, spirituality and faith, the sorts of things that Gandhi adhered to, are not really modern. They're somehow kind of antiquated, um, at, at the least eccentric. They're out of joint. What we want is something that has to do more with a calculable profit and loss understanding of the world. Predominantly an economic profit and loss with some sense of welfare perhaps thrown in. Sometimes this is called development. This is the language of modernity. And if we do not inhabit that language, then we are somehow out uh, of joint. We are out of place. We are not quite modern. And it's in that sense. So, just to illustrate that, so air's rock. In the center, in the middle of uh, Australia, or many, many forest sites and, uh, uh, and hill, hill um, sites in central India uh, or in uh, New Mexico or the oil fields of Colorado, these should not be at any time thought of primarily as spiritual sites. They should be thought of primarily as economic resources, right? That's the modern and that is an example of the kind of universal prejudice that we all accept um, without um, thinking twice about it.
1: Wonderful. That set us up well, theoretically, to, to talk now a little bit more about the case. So in Chapter 2, you, you have a provocative discussion about the idea of difference. So again, a, another big question for you, but could you please tell us about how difference has been deployed in both the Indian and American contexts, and to what effect?
0: Okay, Um Again, I I suspect that the background here uh, would be... um, Well, anyway, let let it come out in my answer. I was going to start with the philosophical proposition about difference, but let let the philosophy of what we mean and, and the sort of abstract quality of the notion of difference emerge from my answers. The major difference that is marked in Indian discourse over the last 100 years now is the difference between Hindus and Muslims. Um, uh, it has been marked as the predominant difference of the Indian nation, the one that that one needs to pay attention to. In exactly the same way, the difference between blacks and whites has been, what should we say, the fundamental, the the um, underwriting, yeah, you know, the the fundamental plank of thinking America or North America. Um, there are, of course, any number of other differences, right? Within these countries, cultural, political, etc. there are any number <clears> themselves <throat> as um, recognizably different from others, which are not always marked as so fundamental. And that is the first thing that um, I, I wanted to suggest by using the notion of difference, that difference is deployed politically in particular, historical context for political purposes. This is this is absolutely critical. So, what happens, for example, is the fundamental—it uh, used to be thought of as biological difference between men and women. The difference between male and female is just simply assumed. It's not even talked about uh, um, most of the time. Uh, it's not central to the political concerns of most nations for most times until in fact women's struggles and the feminist struggle um, or questions about sexuality bring these questions to the fore make that difference politically significant so I want I want to suggest uh, and the book the book suggests that it's interesting to think why certain kinds of differences do not emerge as the most significant or particularly significant for very long periods and then emerge at other times as rather significant. In that category, I would put, for example, in the, in the United States, the Native American one, which is simply assumed. It is, in, the Native Americans are invisible. They're not a very large part of the discourse, and so the difference is not uh, charged in the same way as the difference between blacks and white African Americans and uh, the rest of the European background, American population. Um, In the same way, Hispanics have become, uh, Latina-Latino population in the United States has become very significant now, marked as different, and yet this was not the case for a lot of the earlier part of the 20th century, up to about the 1970s. They were there, they were different, but it was not particularly marked as significant, uh, significant politically. In the same way, I want to suggest that Dalits in India were not marked as significant politically. They come to be marked, in fact, because they become politically relevant, politically challenging, and they come to organize themselves politically and to ask questions about how these differences are organized to produce the sameness, if you like, the, the, no, uh, the what shall we say, uh, mainstream of the nation. So, what differences are marginalised are relegated even into the realm of the invisible, and what differences are invoked in order to produce the mainstream discourse, the thing that is naturalised as the real nation against which all differences are measured.
1: Thank you, thank you for that. Um, now, one of the one of the specific things that you look at in the book is the a fascinating case of Dalit conversion, the conversion of Dalits to Buddhism, most primarily to Buddhism, but also to to other religions. So first, um, for those people who are not familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit about this practice, and then why you consider it to be an assertion of sameness?
0: Okay. um, (laughs) I struggle simply because all of those questions really call for so much more than I'm going to be able to say. Um, here, here's the the short answer on um, Dalit conversions to other religions. The Dalits, I, I first want to emphasise, the Dalits as a community, as a political constituency, are a recent appearance. Uh, it is only from the later nineteenth century or the early twentieth century that the group of castes and subcastes that were considered largely untouchable came to be viewed collectively as the untouchables, the outcasts, the fifth Varna, the fifth category of the Indian caste system, actually outside the caste system and so on. And it's only in the post-independence period in the second half of the 20th century and really from the 1970s and 80s on that the Dalits, or at least the politically active members of the ex-untouchable communities, have called themselves Dalits and given themselves the name Dalits, which literally means the oppressed the uh, people who have been smashed into little bits. This has been reclaimed by Dalit uh, activists, Dalit intellectuals, as their history. This is what happened to them. They are the oppressed, the wretched of the earth, the people who built the earth, built the world, made the world, from whose benefits they have been uh, pushed away, marginalized, deprived. Um, So the Dalit, were at this bottom of the hierarchy in the Indian social setup, uh different castes and subcastes, over a very, very long period. And because of that, from the early modern period onwards at least, there are many, many examples of low caste, low, the lowest castes and classes, seeking to escape the conditions of oppression and discrimination under which they lived by converting to other religions. So there are many, many converts to Islam in the period of Mughal rule in India, and Muslim rule uh, in many different parts of India. Uh, con- converts from the lowest caste seeking some kind of escape, opportunity to engage in other kinds of crafts, the o- opportunity to own land, those sorts of things, which quite often because of their caste status, they were denied earlier on. From that early experience, Into the 18th and 19th centuries, there are conversions to Christianity, conversions to Islam again, uh, and so on. So the conversion to Buddhism, which happens in 1956 on a large scale, the greatest leader of the Dalits in the mid-20th century, and now the recognized, um, what shall we say, Martin Luther King and and, uh, Malcolm X of the Indian Dalit movement, is one man called B.R. Ambedkar um Bhava Sahib Ambedkar. And Ambedkar in 1936 said, I was born a Hindu, it was not my fault. It was not my choice, but it is my choice and I will not die a Hindu because of the discrimination that people in my caste and at my level and amongst my um, um, uh, people uh, suffer. And so, and he spent 20 years from 1936 to 1956, the year in which he died, and just a few months before he died, he converted to Buddhism. He spent 20 years trying to decide which religion the Dalits should embrace, or his community of Dalits should embrace. In the end, they, he, he chose Buddhism In uh, primarily, as I, su- uh, I suggest, or uh, many scholars have suggested, because it would retain the Indic tradition, they would remain within a tradition that was their own, the Indic tradition, uh, and because he saw it as a rational religion, the religion of the modern world. This is the one religion that fits, according to him, with the needs of uh, modern peoples and nations and states everywhere. And so that happened as the, um, uh, in 1956, thousands um, of people converted to, to Buddhism along with him. And since then, many, many more have converted. But I do want to emphasize that that conversion is only one part of a Dalit conversion that has continued. There are still conversions to Islam. There are occasionally conversions to uh, Christianity. And unfortunately, many of these things have given a fillip to, to a kind of backlash amongst the Hindu right, uh, Hindu right-wing politicians and activists who, who now fight against this, um, practice of conversion. Let me guess. That's a separate history. That's what was happening in the conversion uh, to Buddhism uh, as to other religions. I have called it in my book a conversion to citizenship, to modernity, to... uh, It's a a political demand to being human beings. So the conversion to Buddhism is all of those things together. And that probably... uh, would help to answer your question about why do I call it a conversion to sameness? Why is it an assertion of sameness? It's an assertion of sameness in precisely that sense, that we are citizens too. We are equal to everybody else in this country, and indeed in the world. What is more, Ambedkar and his followers have said that the history of India is really a long history, a millennial long history, of struggle between Buddhism and Brahmanism. And the Brahmins subjugated the Dalits, the Buddhists. But it is the Buddhists who have made the world, and it is the Buddhists who may show sure to the world what its future should be, what the best kind of world might be. As a result, they're calling for sameness, but they're calling for a different sameness, a sameness in which the dignity of labor, the fruits of labor, and the importance, the centrality of, of human labor to the making of all worlds. Is recognized, appreciated, and and fully rewarded. Um, I hope that that helps answer the question to some extent.
1: Yeah, so That's a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. Um, the next chapter in the book uh, is about um, is about the American case and it's about the the double V or double victory movement of the African Americans during World War Two. Um, just with half an eye on on the amount of time that we're taking and to give you enough time to answer the questions fully. If you don't mind, I think we'll, we'll skip over this chapter and just to flag it up for the listeners as a very interesting discussion about the role of masculinity and militarism and what these two ideas, how these two ideas played out in the movement. And instead, I want to ask you a question about chapter five, which is the which is, um, which is is um a focus on the African-American autobiography. It's specifically that of one lady, Viola Andrews. And um, hers is a very interesting biography, which you say fails to assemble because it has too many others or, or too many overings. So could you please first tell us a little bit about Viola and then also what you mean to capture by this idea of, of there being too many others?
0: Okay. Um, Viola, which is, which is how she called herself. Viola Andrews was um, lived in the countryside about an hour from Atlanta, where I now live. Um, uh, an hour east of Atlanta, in um, the as, as her family and the person she married and her children and she were sharecroppers in that countryside, sharecroppers and laborers and, uh, relatively uh, poor uh, if comfortable uh, enough uh, uh, low, lower class people peasant uh, laboring people um, who, in 1953, Viola leaves her husband, and I'll just explain the circumstances in a minute, um, and comes with her children. Four, four of her children have already moved to Atlanta as they've grown up. Three three of the older ones, uh, older boys, three, the three oldest boys have moved to Atlanta and joined the military. Um, the oldest girl has also joined them. They've gone to high school in Atlanta and so on. And they encourage and help the mother but Viola leaves in 1953 um, uh, at the age of 42, uh, uh, or thereabouts, when she's around 40, um, and um, she brings all her children, including her last child who's in her womb, to Atlanta, and they move within one generation into middle-class conditions. She educates all her children, the children do fairly well. All As a result, through the military, they are able to go up for higher education and several of them do extremely well, but all of them, boys and girls, move into relatively comfortable middle class positions. And uh, that could be seen as a remarkable success story, um, from rags to riches, if you like, in any case, from uh, rather difficult circumstances to relatively more comfortable circumstances within one generation. What's fascinating fascinating about Viola's autobiography, which she begins to write in the 1960s, 10 years after she moves to Atlanta, uh, and which she writes in Atlanta, which is the center, a major headquarters of the civil rights struggle uh, in America. It is the home of Martin Luther King Jr., as you know. Uh, it is a place from where the Student Nonviolent Action Committee, the Southern, um, uh, liberal conference, the um, southern uh, um, alliance of Christian churches, black Black Christian churches, all of these things operate very, very strongly from Atlanta. Um, and there are huge marches, there are sit-ins at uh, lunch counters, there is participation in the struggles that go on in Alabama and, uh, and in Georgia uh, and all over the South, which brings about voting rights. And the the Civil Rights Act and so on of the, of the mid sixties, um, Viola begins to write her autobiography, which is never published, but uh, which is, exists in hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, through that struggle. Yet she never writes about the Civil Rights struggle. And so I mark that as a very interesting moment. What she writes about is black-white relations the whole of the whole of the time. All her her um, her autobiography is full of the struggles of a black, of a, of a poor black woman in the countryside, moving into the city, and the kinds of discrimination and difficulties and so on that she had to face up, uh, face uh, up to. Um, yet she never calls it the civil rights. She never links it to the big civil rights marches. It's a struggle that somehow deeper, longer, um, it's gone on and it will continue to go on. And part of the reason for that, I suggest, is this. Paula marries a man who is uh, white to all appearances. His father was a white man, his mother was a black woman, but a mixed uh, woman of Native American, white and black ancestry. Very beautiful uh, woman, Um, brown-skinned, not very light-skinned. But the son of that marriage, uh, Paula's husband, George, is completely white. He, he's very, very light-skinned. He's blue-eyed. He's blonde-haired. He, he spends all his life uh, sh- with his head shaven, with his head covered with a hat, uh, slouching, as his son r- writes somewhere. Yeah, uh, George spent his life trying to be more black than the blacks. He spent all of his, all of his time trying to be more downtrodden than any blacks might appear, because he wanted to fit into the black community. And the paradox, the difficulty for Viola is Viola, who's a very dark woman, also of very mixed ancestry, but she's a very dark woman and very proud of being black. And there's this husband of hers, a mixed race man like her, uh, like she was a mixed race woman, but white and very, very ashamed of being white, ashamed of not being black enough. She leaves him in the end because he's because of his shame, because he refuses to stand up for things, he refuses to fight for his children and their rights, whereas she wants to do nothing but fight, make sure they will not suffer the kinds of discrimination, the kinds of deprivation that she and her husband and others of that generation had suffered. So she leaves her husband in part because of that, his kind of to to join that fight, she also leaves because of the patriarchy, because her white father-in-law, so to speak, um, uh, ill-treats her, and ill-treats all the black people around. Um, And because in that patriarchal world, her husband ill-treats her, beats her, uh, refuses to uh, um, see women, Uh, or children, as equal partners in a family and a relationship. Now, that probably is enough of an indication of how many others there are in the story that she tells. For her, there is not only the racial other between black and white, there is also the others within the racial community, within the black community, those who are often called yellow, you know, not sufficiently black, people who don't fit into their community, who, who are derided because of it. There's all that kind, that, that kind of othering going on, all that kind of discrimination that, that, that people have to face. Children, Her children have psychological problems, serious psychological problems, because some of them are too white. She herself suffers very serious psychological uh, um, um, challenges because of uh, what she uh, experiences in Atlanta where her fair-skinned daughter is often thought of as, she is, uh, Viola is thought of as the the fair-skinned daughter's nurse. Uh, And so she finds herself unwittingly walking behind, unthinkingly walking behind her daughter when they're walking along the streets and so on. Uh, So they suffer not only the racial, um, shall we say, clash, uh, and uh, division between blacks and whites, but racial divisions and and complications within the black community very seriously. Um, Viola suffers, of course, also from the patriarchal conditions that she grows up in, and that the 1960s and 70s once again challenge in a way, a fundamental way, in the United States and in much of Western Europe and elsewhere. Um, but the uh, the the marking of that patriarchal world as a world that was not hers, is another very important part of what is happening in autobiography. None of this is consciously or, what should we say, um, categorically done. It just emerges in the story. And one final suggestion I might make is, uh, Bayada is a very, very deeply religious woman. For her, the Bible is her guide, her, her one sole ally all through her life. And for her, the Bible is literal truth, quite often. It's not just metaphorical truth. It's not just a guide in a more general sense of values. and It's literal truth. Moses delivered the Jews, led them out of Egypt. God will deliver the blacks, and he's got me a radio. You know, it's that kind of thing. So, so the number of different others that emerge here, the number of different fault lines, the number of battles that are ongoing and very fundamental and that make up, this is the last thing I'll say, that make for a civil rights struggle and a black struggle that is actually far deeper, far more varied in its locations, uh, far more unexpected in its in its roots uh, than we know. Uh, all that comes out from our autobiography. So I, I would say that, you know, the struggle for civil rights, the struggle struggle that we know as the Harlem Renaissance. All all Viola's children are artists. They're creative writers. And she does, uh, they're creative writers or painters. Uh, and she does everything she can to encourage this from the time when they're three and four and five. And her husband is, is irate about the fact that they're wasting their time with these sorts of things. Uh, she encourages all of that. And in my mind, I often think, This is where the Harlem Renaissance began. This kind of work, this kind of aspiration, this kind of world that mothers and fathers in all parts of the American South and in all parts of America will have struggled to build, to create for their children, was what produced the great cultural Renaissance called the the Harlem Renaissance. And the cultural um, effervescence and uh, uh, movement that was central to the civil rights struggle.
1: Wonderful, thank thank you so much. For that. it really is a it's a totally fascinating chapter, and she's a totally uh, fascinating um, person. So I'm really I'm really glad to have, have read about her, and I hope people at home got um, got some taste of, of, of what a fascinating story that was. Um, if we just stick on the topic of of uh, autobiographies, then we could also talk about uh, ballet. Autobiography. So I was wondering, this is what you talk about in Chapter 6. So I was wondering, could you first please tell us a little bit about this genre, which is which is quite established and, and I believe growing as well, and then also how the individual and the community are often represented in these texts?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm taking too long with all of this, so let me try and be briefer on that one. Um, the Dalit struggle uh, developed on two fronts. One was this front of writing, of cultural um, efflorescence uh, and in the in the area of cultural struggle what dalits and african americans too in, in the uh, in the earlier stages produced was mainly autobiographical writing and poetry the poetry, poetry of the oppressed and the autobiographical writings which are their only archive the autobiography in my life story is my archive and these were the things that first brought attention to the kinds of lives that Dalits have had to live uh, and African Americans had to live and other oppressed peoples have had to live uh, in different parts of the recognizing in detail or with any visceral sense what uh, these lives meant and how um, difficult uh, and horrendous these lives could be so Dalit autobiography biography emerges in the 1970s. Interestingly, um, uh, around a political movement which, which uh, of young people who called themselves the Dalit Panthers, named after the Black Panthers uh, in Western uh, United States. Uh, the Dalit Panthers in the 1970s called themselves Dalit Panthers. They were very militant. They were calling for um, armed struggle, of course, India didn't have and um, didn't have is more appropriate, I was going to say, doesn't have the kind of gun laws and availability of guns that, that uh, the United States had. So they didn't, it doesn't become a, a, a movement with firearms, but it is a very militant, very, very strong, aggressive movement uh, of attack against Brahmins and against the upper caste and so on. Uh, in that autobiographical writing was the cultural moment, the cultural side of this movement. And the fact that Indian government and the Indian constitution had provided educational and public service opportunities and had built the Indian constitution, Ambedkar was a critical person in this, but he was supported by the vast majority of parliamentarians and constitution writers and makers of the mid-20th century. Um, They had built in affirmative action um, quotas, 10% of seats in uh, high schools and uh, universities 10% of seats in public services for people of Dalit background people from ex castes and, and communities that uh, population uh, young people who go into colleges and go into public service go into intellectual, profe- uh, in, into professional middle class situations uh, in, well, within the first generation after Indian independence Um, are the people who become these new writers. They write the autobiographies, they write about the cultural struggle, they write about uh, Dalit lives. And that movement, starting in Western India in Maharashtra, which is where Ambedkar was from, then spreads and, and spreading very quickly to Southern India where lower caste and Dalit struggles had started fairly early on. It has spread in the 1980s and 90s all over the country and has become a very, very powerful expression of um, citizenship rights, of civil rights, of of you know the need to make a modern world. So that's the background to to um, the making of uh, the Dalit autobiographies. Was there another part to the question you asked me?
1: We just I mean I, I don't know whether we'll have time to discuss the two biographies that uh, that you have, but maybe that, that you detail in the chapter. But you you talked a little bit in the sort of the Conclusion to that about how the individual and the community are are represented in these texts.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, And again, um, uh, perhaps the best thing to say is that many of these autobiographies and writers say in so many words, this is not a traditional autobiography. This is not the autobiography of an individual. Sometimes they say this is the autobiography of a community, even though that is a very odd statement to make. Some of them call it a sociobiography. But I think with African-American struggles, with uh, the struggles of Aboriginal peoples in Australia, with the struggles of many stigmatized peoples in many parts of the world of this kind, what we have is autobiographies as early histories, as statements of the conditions of the community. They're very much, the, uh, the writing is both about an individual and a community. Now I want to just stress, that this is probably even more the case amongst Dalits than it is amongst the African Americans that I studied. And there are probably two, uh, two um, different sorts of reasons for this. One is that the collect cities, which reproduce countryside-like and caste-like um, locations and um, uh, population settlements, um, in the countryside as well as in the cities, the collective, the caste, the community, the the um, group that you belong to, remains a very very much more important node, focus around which individuals are in which individuals must build their lives. The individual cannot so easily separate himself or herself from the community in the social consciousness and the social conditions that India has, to this day, uh, as compared to what individuals can do in the United States. I don't want to suggest that this is black uh, black and white difference, I mean, you know, so sharp that there is nothing that uh, of, um, that is similar. But in the Indian case, the collective does tend to, if you like, um, engulf the individual rather more uh, make demands on the individual rather more and one other part of that is that the Dalit movement is of course a much more recent movement than the African-American struggle which from the times uh, of the, um, the war against slavery uh, has had over a hundred years and the Dalit struggle is still in its, in its current form if you like 60 or 70 years old and not much more. And As a young movement, I think it is, uh, it's more demand. So that the individual who makes good, who becomes middle class, uh, who becomes a civil servant or a professor or a doctor or a lawyer, that sort of individual is called upon to answer the question why are you not doing more for the community? Why are you talking about yourself and not the community? And I think the autobiography has come in that way, to be informed very much more by this tension, this, this uh, shared concern with the rights and needs and aspirations of the individual and the individual's family, but with the rights and aspirations and needs of the community as well.
1: Wonderful. Thank thank you so much for that. There's a there's a lot more in this book and there's so there's many things we've not had the chance um, to talk about, but I'd just like to recommend it for anyone listening to the podcast. It really is a, a fascinating read. Before I before I received the book, just because of the grand title, A History of Prejudice, I was expecting a, a really fat book, but it's actually a very slim book and a very and a very and a very beautiful read. So um, yeah, I'd really like to recommend that to um to everyone out there. And now that this book is out, I'm sure you have new or uh, future projects in mind so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your um, current and future projects are
0: <laughs> and that's the largest question you've <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and make the shortest answer yes um, like all of us you know as, as you work more and more on things you know more projects emerge and write about or think about think about is, is the best uh, tell um, but at the moment, there are two things that I'm working on pretty actively and concerned with um, urgently, if you like. Um, one is a fairly—it's uh, not an abstract uh, theoretical uh, concern with the issue of politics and democracy in our time. And I'm thinking about this in the in in a world context. I mean, I'm going to take America and India as my main examples, but I take Dubai as a very central example. Did in Europe, in in North America, uh, in in uh, Africa and Asia too, um, into populations um, that um, you know. Uh, what should we say? Into well, populations are separated from one another, segregated from one another, one another in very significant ways, behind walls quite often, literally behind walls, in fortress-like conditions. So let's just take Dubai, and that might make the point um, quickly for, um, for, for for the purposes of this answer. In Dubai, people t- talk about a triptych of populations, three different kinds, uh, a kind of um, um, economic elite of Europeans, of um, increasingly of Asians, uh, expats who live in very comfortable sorts of surroundings where it it even rains now, their canals and their green lawns and their very comfortable uh, bungalows and so on and so forth. They live in a a part of the city or a part of the country that others cannot easily even aspire to. Now, these expats, I suggest to you, now exist in most parts of the world they are an economic elite that does not need the old politics of the nation-state, does not even vote much of the time, couldn't, isn't particularly concerned with them. They are, and think of themselves, as citizens of the world, and they can travel almost anywhere. They do not need political power in a traditional sense. They need some other people to do their politics for them, and they usually have them. So in Dubai, you have the Emirati rulers doing the, doing the political work for that economic elite even if the Emirati rulers are sometimes part of that economic elite themselves. So the Amirati rulers will create the conditions for an expat and economic elite, uh, a, a expatriate population and economic elite, that wants certain conditions for investment and trade and profit and so on and so forth, uh, but that don't want to sully their hands with the dirty business of politics. And then, so, there's a, there's a kind of local ruling class and bureaucratic population that does all of that work of dirty politics that used to be done in the past by many different kinds of groups. And then there is a huge population of immigrants, usually single male migrants, who do not even have um, their passports with them. Their their travel papers are often confiscated when they arrive. They have short-term contracts, they have no rights in the land and they will often be repatriated. They do the hard, dirty labor of building these, the stadium in Qatar for the um, for, for the World, World Cup football tournament that is supposed to happen there. Uh, they do the, all the work in, in Dubai for building the malls, building the luxury apartments, building the canals, whatever, what have you, building the airport. They live near the airport in terrible conditions uh, without air conditioning uh, and so on that triptych of populations, to which I will add an older middle-class population, which many of the new laborers, many of the other um, members of the economic and political classes also might join at various points, a kind of inchoate middle-class population that is increasing in size to some extent, that is committed to Dubai, uh, but also committed to India, if that's where they came from, or to Pakistan, or to Singapore, or the Philippines, where they, where they came from originally, Um, and who live in a less certain condition than they used to when nation-states were much clearer. So what, what what my suggestion is, is that with this kind of distribution of populations, and I suggest that something of that kind of distribution of populations is taking place all over the world, even though its components, the content of each category, will differ, rather radically in different parts of the world. They had very different histories in North America or Western Europe or uh, Southeast Asia. But this this, uh, disaggregation of populations and disaggregation of economic and political privileges is taking place very rapidly and very widely across the world. And so I'm thinking uh, as much as I can and trying to work out what are the conditions of politics and democracy in this kind of time? Politics and democracy in individual nations and across the world. And I'm thinking uh, the important question here is what are the forces that actually make for democracy, make for the possibilities of changed worlds and better opportunities for all in these circumstances? And I think the answers are actually unexpected. They are unusual answers. It is not the educated and not the the richest people who are by any means committed to democracy or committed to producing the better world. So that's one project. I'm sorry, that took longer than I had thought. The other one uh, is is a more focused, uh, more um, uh, empirically grounded uh, too. I mean, the first one, ethnographically grounded, I think uh, will be strong empirically too. But the, the second one, uh, probably the best way to think about it is um, as a book for a wider audience, uh, on India in the 20th century, uh, 20th century India, but in which the cast of characters will not be primarily um, Gandhi and Nehru and uh, Ambedkar and Rajgopalachari and you know uh, the well-known and remarkable political leaders uh, or um, thinkers uh, who made modern India. Uh, they will be there. But I'm really very interested in the kinds of writers in Hindi and Marathi and um, Urdu and so on, who wrote about the ways in which life in the villages and towns around them was changing and their own aspirations and the aspirations of people around them and how these were affected by, made by, uh, transformed by the conditions of 20th century India. And... So the, my cast of characters would be primarily, if you like, or at least the pegs upon which I might hang the story, is a set of writers who write at the beginning of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, and the end of the 20th century. But through them, the cast of characters that are central to their novels and short stories and their understanding of this society and its transformations, because those, that cast of characters include, includes Dalits and women and poor people and uh, what have you, uh, who don't have archives, who do not write, don't have privileges, don't have the time to step back and do the kind of thinking and writing that we might, uh, um, uh, we certainly have the time for, and that I hope we might do.
1: Hmm. Wonderful. They, they both sound like two absolutely fascinating projects and we look forward to to reading them in a, a year or two years down the line. They, they, they really sound wonderful. So, uh, Thanks for letting us know by then, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today about your work.
0: Thank you, Ian, and I'm I'm sorry I was long-winded about so many of those uh, responses, but your questions, as I said before, were very, very uh, large questions. (laughs) Uh, I hope I was able to say something to them. Okay, (laughs) thank you, and we look forward to talking about your work sometime.
1: Uh, I hope so too. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies Podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about the history of prejudice, race, caste, and difference in India and the United States by Gainendra Pandey. I really enjoyed this book. It's 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 a mind-blowing book in many different ways, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to our discussion today. I also hope you download the podcast next time. Ta ra!